The Lord be with you. A couple quick reminder announcements. The uh, Muriel Skarin, is her funeral is this Saturday, I believe at 1 o'clock, and more information will be in the WAG this Friday. The Owls are meeting on Thursday at the Tasty Biscuit. You can sign up at the Welcome Center. And the LWML, uh, LWML Mike collection is today in the Narthex. So uh, Theology on Tap coming up in two weeks, and I think that's all of our announcements. Coming up on Saturday, there's a big to-do here with um, we're trying to reach out to preschool families, especially preschool families in the area. So uh, Linda's, what's his name? Jill? Gil? Gil. Uh, it's like a kid's, um, kids, what do you describe? Entertainment, fun, song thingy. Um, I think of the guy from Freddy Spaghetti from Parks and Rec. Anybody? No? Um, so it's, we're attempting to get uh, preschool families just on the campus. So a lot of, uh, a lot of people just aren't even aware that what, what the gym that we have in our, in our preschool and our school. So just getting people aware of it, bringing awareness. So if you've got neighbors uh, with, with children um, or, you know, neighbors in their 60s who really like children's entertainment, I guess, uh, <laughs> invite them along. So today, Luke, 20, uh, Luke 22, part 6. Surely you remember right where we left off a month and a half ago. I don't. <laughs> I reviewed. So um, just, to, just to kind of give you a quick reminder. So you might be saying to yourself, when is this going to end? Well, not, hopefully we only have two more chapters to go. So how, I, I can drag it out for a while, but uh, at some point I've got to stop. Luke 24 is where, is where Luke ends. We've been building up a lot of momentum at this point. Uh, now Luke 22 especially is where we're going to get into the betrayal, arrest of Jesus, and then ultimately going toward the, the most important thing that he does, his death on the, on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So we've been gearing up for that this whole time. Um, and now we're finally, now we're finally there. Luke, starting with Luke 22, you you likely hear outside of your own personal devotional reading, you likely hear Luke 22 through Luke 24, like in in one quick weekend. Like you'll go to Good Friday services and you'll hear maybe bits and pieces of this reading, um, or maybe just read right through it. And you don't get a chance to really think about it or chew on it much. Then all of a sudden, Good Friday is over. And then you're, in, you're into Easter in Luke 24. And then all of a sudden, you're off and moving again. So uh, we have this opportunity to kind of slow down and chew on uh, the, the betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. And the timing should line up, depending on how long I talk about talking about it, um, line up in such a way that we are, we're going to we'll be up at, at Lent. We get maybe in the midst of Lent when we're going through um, the resurrection. So you can kind of have it on your mind and having studied it, um, maybe more questions will come to you as we go through. So uh, just a good opportunity to chew, on, to chew on the Lord's word and his preaching of his cross. I encourage you, if you haven't done so, the new year is always a great time to jump into like a reading, like a Bible reading program. If you're not doing that and you're thinking, hey, it's already January, whatever it is. Seventh, and I didn't start. It's okay. It doesn't matter. Like you can download. There's a, a few apps out there. Like my favorite is I think it's called the Bible app or ESV app, and they've got tons of reading plans that you can. It gives you a whole like one year schedule, and every morning 
Like I just listen to it like when I'm brushing my teeth or something. You listen, you can listen to it if you don't have time to sit down and read it. And it just gives you a few of the Old Testament, a few of the New Testament, uh, Psalms and Proverbs. And usually you can get through it in four or five minutes. Um, especially for those of you who might be sitting in traffic, commuting. It's a great, a great thing. Just to be in the Word every day. So if you haven't had a chance to do that or listen to the Bible in a year, it's a, a, jump right in. There's lots of reading schedules. Even in the, the front of the Lutheran Study Bible, there's, there's various schedules there, there as well. So uh, if you haven't, if you, if you thought about doing it and, and been dragging your feet, please uh, consider jumping in and doing that. All right. Luke 22, betrayal and arrest of Jesus. So just before now, in Luke 22, the previous five parts, um, just to kind of quickly hit, we remember Jesus. He, no, it wasn't even recorded in Luke. But what Jesus does is he raises Lazarus from the dead. If you remember from the John account, when Jesus famously raises Lazarus from the dead, and at the end of that long account, that's when the Pharisees, they, like, they set to kill him. That was when they finally got it in their minds. All right, this guy's got to go. It was the, it was the raising of Lazarus from the dead that was Jesus. The analogy I use is Jesus taking the baseball bat and like smacking the hornet's nest because he needed the Pharisees to kill him. And so uh, they, they start plotting to kill him. They go through Judas to betray him. Then we get the whole Last Supper. So during the, during the last the, the Passover with the disciples, uh, we know Judas is, is planning to betray him. Jesus institutes the supper. We talked about the Lord's Supper at length. Jesus does a little teaching on who is the greatest, that we are to be uh, servants, uh, just as Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Then he looks over at Peter and says, hey, you're, you know how you say you're uh, going to be uh, such a faithful disciple? No, you're not. He's gonna, he, predict, he predicts his betrayal only like a few hours before it actually happens. So like, if you're like me, I forget stuff all the time, especially like the more time that passes between when Mandy tells me something, when it actually occurs, I just completely forget things happening. But like you think of all things, Jesus just told him this <laughs> and he's going to go and he's going to deny Jesus, not just once, but three times, just like Jesus said, especially like the, when Jesus says to Peter, the rooster will not crow this day. That's a specific thing. Peter's like the rooster, why bring roosters into this? And yet, sure enough, and I, I, I bet, I, no, I know that I say that, that's why it's so profound when the rooster finally crows. Because when Jesus said, the rooster is not going to crow, not, not going to crow this day until you betray me three times, um, or uh, deny me three times, he's like, Peter's like, the crow? What are you talking about the rooster crowing? So when the rooster actually does, he's thinking, I just, I remember somebody telling me about a rooster just a few minutes. Oh, right? <laughs> All right, and then, uh, then Jesus is in the Mount of Olives praying, famously, not my will, but yours be done. And that's kind of where we left off, uh, Jesus sweating, uh, sweating blood with his anxiety, praying for the, the cup to pass. And then he goes to the disciples and says, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And what that temptation might have been, um, likely the temptation not to... Not to, that sleeping is like we're tempted to sin or like sleeping is in any way uh, sinful. It's a temptation to, uh, to deny Jesus, to betray him, which is exactly the thing that they do in the next few verses. 
So verse 47, if you don't have a Bible, there's plenty of Bibles back there in the back. The handout is just a, your handout is to remind me kind of where I'm going. So if you need to follow along with Luke 22, grab you a Bible. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, so he just told the disciples, rise and pray that you may not enter into Tim and you start to hear the rumbling in the bushes. There came a crowd and the man called Judas one of the 12 was leading them. I think of like when Gaston is going to get the beast and they got like the, the torches and pitchforks. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Now, obviously, not to belabor this point, but obviously for us in our, in our culture, kissing is a little bit of a different thing, but obviously it's a very common greeting, especially a greeting of, of unity. So that's part of why like, you know, you don't, you don't just go around kissing random strangers, but it's a show of this way we the difference in a in a hand, a handshake. I remember like you know, I meet Mandy's dad, you know, the first time it's a handshake, and then eventually at some point over the next however many years, I start getting a hug when we leave. You know, kind of you grow in that relationship from a hug to he still hasn't kissed me yet, thankfully. <laughs> uh, but you see, that's the idea. It shows this increased this increased sense of unity. So it was. It's telling that in that, it's in that gesture that that's the thing that Judas uses to sell out Jesus. So it wasn't just any, I'm just going to point at the guy. It's I'm going to use this ultimate sign of unity to betray him. But Jesus said to him, uh, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? The son of man uh, common messianic term. We'll talk a little bit about the messianic uh, titles for Jesus. Son of man, especially focusing on his humanity. Jesus calls himself the son of man quite often. It wasn't as knee-jerk. If Jesus said, if he referred to himself as the son of God, which he, he, he will, and he is the son of God, but um, in these contexts, he was leaving it more, he was leaving it more vague. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when, they, uh, when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now, immediately, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. It wasn't like, imagine how this goes. It's just weird to play, play this out in your head. They ask, they, so they say, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? But there wasn't a conversation. There wasn't like asking him for feedback. How, these guys must have been really close and you see this growing tension and they're just really quickly, shall we? And they just, somebody pulls out a sword, slices off the, the ear. One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now that's interesting. Why the right ear? Why wouldn't he cut off his left ear? He was already gone. <laughs> this guy's always in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> Not again. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, no, but that, this, why would Luke mention not only that it occurred, but the specific detail, this right ear. And then John, John later will say that it wasn't just a servant of the high priest. It was, in fact, a dude named Malchus. And that's my the first question in your handout. How is the inclusion of the ear slicing and healing account helpful for the reliability of the gospel? 
the right, Jesus says, no more of this and touches the ear and healed him. So the more, the more specifics that are in the scriptures, the more it actually is a testimony to its, its truthfulness. Especially because these are documents that are written and circulated well within the time when people are still living who would have known a guy named Malchus. And my cousin's next door neighbor is named Malchus. And he was always talking about he had his ear cut off one day or something like that. So this would have been like a memorable thing, not just for the disciples who were there, but specifically for whom? Malchus. He's going to remember. And so if anybody in this scenario who all of a sudden went from being maybe on the fence about Jesus to, I think this guy might be legit. It's going to be Malchus who's like, okay, ear was off, and then it's pain to ear back on, no more bleeding. And so people are going to be going as soon as John writes it. And even from this, own, this scenario itself, from Luke's recounting of this uh, episode, people are able to go and ask. And that's Luke's point way back from the very beginning. If you remember, Luke sought to provide an accurate accounting of the details. Remember, Luke was, a, was one of the gospel writers who's not a disciple. He hadn't been walking with Jesus like the others. But Luke's a physician, so he's big on the, he's big on the details, and he goes around interviewing people. So Luke gives us lots of interesting details. Think back with Christmas fresh on our minds, all the stuff with the manger. So the key thing that Luke keeps bringing up at the end of both the manger scene and again after they lose Jesus in Jerusalem is that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. That is, she's not going to forget about it anytime soon. And then when Luke comes around and says, hey, is there anything specific you want to mention about the night Jesus was born? After all, he was born of a virgin. Anything you want to bring up? Oh, yeah, there are some shepherds who came out of nowhere talking about angels in the sky. That's helpful. I'll write that down, says Luke, right? So all these details are coming out because he's interviewing eyewitnesses. Just like here. So the... It's, it's the... the, the the subject is called apologetics. It's defending. We talk about this a lot in Theology on Tap, but it's making a case for the reliability of the Bible itself. So we can make a case for um, whether or not there is a God, kind of in a generic sense. So you can make natural law arguments, maybe moral law arguments that there is a God. But ultimately, the only way you get from generic God to big power up in the sky to a specific Jesus, incarnate, uh, born of a virgin, dying on the cross, rising from the dead. You only get that specific story, especially in our time, from the scriptures. Kind of helpful if we, if we know that the scriptures are reliable, right? That they didn't just, somebody just started making this up, like a, some conspiracy theory, like in the Da Vinci Code, kind of makes that case. So um, details like this, knowing that when the that the scriptures were written within the t lifespan of, of all the people who would have been around. And would you say that, like, if you, if you and I were trying to craft an artificial document, and we're including it in ourselves, don't you think we'd maybe kind of make ourselves look better? <laughs> but, but the disciples, all these accounts are always doing terrible things, especially what's about to happen with Peter. Of all, the, of all the people who are trying to do some kind of like, if you're making up and fabricating a, a religion, 
why would you, why would you make Peter look so bad um, unless it were actually true? And that's the point. So we get these specifics. That's why the, I think one of the, main, one of the helpful things of the right ear being there, for you and me, it's like, who cares? But for Luke's audience, like, right, so who, who had the, right away, right away you're thinking, who, so who was this guy? Show me, come on, show me the, show me the, the scar. Who else was there? What about these other guards who were there with Malchus? And they're, when, they're, when they're walking with Jesus back to drag him to Pontius Pilate, what's, Malchus, what's running through his mind? What's running through the, guy, the, mind, the minds of the people next to him? Like, okay, I saw the guy with the sword. I pulled my sword. I saw blood. I saw an ear. What just happened? Was that your ear? Was it my ear? <laughs> Jesus touched his, so Jesus says, verse 51, Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus knows what's happening. Jesus is on the way. He knows he's on the way to the cross. That's why he's praying in the garden. The, the, the bleeding of, or the sweating of blood. This high sense of anxiety. Jesus knows the cross is coming. If anything, he's like, all right. Maybe a little bit of like anger is let out. Cuts off Malchus's ear. He's like, yeah, that will show him. But no, Jesus can't help but bring compassion, even though this specific ear healing is somewhat irrelevant. Jesus is on his way to solve the whole problem. Malchus's ear is the least of his problems. His whole body is going to die. And yet Jesus stops, takes the time to heal his ear. He has compassion on Malchus. He doesn't need to do that. He's going he's gonna to bring reliability to his divinity when he rises from the dead. This ear thing was specifically for Malchus. And that, so this is a, yet another example in the scriptures of the, the unique mercy of our Lord Jesus that he just can't help but like when he's walking along he just heals blind people. He, he, he heals the, the lame, the blind, uh, the, the, the mute. He just can't help it because people are crying out for help and Christianity has always been about the same work. So this, the mercy, so no, who's, who's opening all the hospitals? They're all, they're all named Saint something, right? Especially early on, because this, this is a, it's a uniquely Christian idea to actually show mercy to people. And ultimately, yeah, we can save their bodies, but if their soul's, if their, if their soul's gone, that doesn't do them any good. So yeah, we want to go after the soul, but you can't really get to the soul if their body isn't working. So we're going after the body too. So this unique view of, of mercy so we, the, the, the Christian church, I mean, not just, certainly not just Lutheranism, but the, the, the Christian church on earth is always helping those in, in need. And then, then ultimately pushing toward the gospel, uh, using that as an opportunity to push toward the gospel. And Jesus is setting that example for us as he heals Malchus's ear. Verse 52, see if I have, oh yeah, here we go. 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. So the chief priests, the officers of the temple and elders, this is, this is like a, a massive alliance of all these great powers. Some of them were in opposition to one another. It's like whenever the Pharisees and the Sadducees are always getting together against Jesus, you have like all the big movers and shakers It's on, on either side. It's like a bipartisan deal. Is that the word? So they're all coming out after Jesus. Have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs? Well, I mean, I, this is weird. Like, if I was going out against a murderer, 
I would bring swords and clubs. But a robber, I'm thinking, this guy's maybe he's quick. But why would I need swords and clubs against a robber? Now here is, I didn't, I didn't run upon, I didn't even know this until I was doing the study for this. The same, the, the Greek word for robber, the translated robber, is the same Greek word that's translated as like um, insurrectionist, revolutionary. This is why, fast forward to the cross, when you're thinking, okay, what was the offense of the guys who were crucified next to Jesus? They were the thieves on the cross. What did they steal? <laughs> well, no, so the Greek, the Greek idea, the, the Greek idea here is there, there's, the, the way that one of the commentaries put it is that they're social, social bandits. They're trying to steal, they're trying to steal like society for themselves. There's still power within society for themselves. So that same idea of, Yes, it's used in the case of stealing small things, but also in the case of insurrectionists. So that would make more sense, seeing Jesus as trying to incite a rebellion. And also it makes sense for the guys on the cross with Jesus, especially since Jesus is being accused by the, the, the crowds there who are screaming crucify him in just a few verses. Those same guys are accusing Jesus of causing an insurrection. Remember, we have no God, we have no king but Caesar. He's claiming to be king, right? That's why it makes perfect sense for him to be on the cross in between two other insurrectionists, see? So you come out against me as against an insurrectionist with, with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. So Jesus is saying, I've been out in broad daylight with, like, you guys are right there. And I was actually teaching the thing that you're apparently accusing me of, of teaching. So why didn't you just arrest me then? Now why? Why did they wait till night? Because they know what? You know it's wrong. <laughs> and he's popular. So he's gonna, if he starts to go after, if they try to pull Jesus aside in the midst of everybody else, there's going to be a big rebellion, people defending him, right? They don't want to cause a, a stink. They're also trying to cover up in, in the cover of darkness. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This interesting phrase from Jesus. He's talking to the guys who are coming out to arrest him. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, who is the guy kind of working in Judas to bring all this about? Satan. So what we get this power of darkness, Satan's hour. And we can count as my question on the handout there is simply to, to, to chew on that phrase for a bit. What is the power of darkness from our own perspective? The, the light-dark motif is a big deal in the scriptures. And so Jesus is the light. The people who dwelt in great darkness, on them that light has shined, right? The light came into the world. So what is the problem with darkness? So fear of what? The unknown. Fear of what we can't see. We don't... We, yeah, so... <laughs> he who comes to kill, steal, and destroy is doing it in, in, under the cover of darkness. Because yeah, we know when Baxter. Based on lies, because he's the father of lies. Deception. Darkness as deception. So um, the power of darkness is that it's, it's able to conceal itself. And so when Jesus shows up as the remedy to that, the remedy to the power of darkness is what? Light. Light. So calling a thing what it is. Bringing like exposing reality. As Jesus says, uh, when Jesus calls himself the truth, like I am the way, the truth, right, and the life, 
This word for truth isn't just truth in the opposite of, as, as the opposite of false. But the Greek idea of truth is, is simply reality. I am reality, and I bring with me reality. So not just right and wrong, good and evil, but what is existence? Where do we come from? That we have a created order? We know where we're going? All of these, all this reality. So bringing this word of reality into the darkness is the very thing that chases the darkness away. It's, it's funny to think about darkness as being chased away, but it does kind of scurry off. It's, it's, uh, it happens so quickly we can't see it, but you turn on the light and the darkness kind of like chases into the, and the, and the, and the cockroaches and rats kind of go with it into the darkness, right? So where, the, where Jesus is, bringing his word of truth and light, the darkness scatters and the darkness doesn't really like the light. So lots of applications maybe uh, that we can make for today that as we see the, how, how might we think about the power of darkness being at work today? It's increasing every day. It's increasing every day? Or maybe we're just noticing it more every day. What is it? When you call evil good and good evil. When you call evil good and good evil. Yeah, and you can't. And this is no, this is nothing new. A male is a male, or a female is a female. So it's definitely application with like in, in the in the sexual realm, right? The transgender revolution. That's kind of the most the most popular in our in our society today. But you go down the list of you go down all the commandments, and there's no stop to like people trying to justify their sins or, or saying that what, is, what the scriptures call evil is in fact good, right? So the Lord's standing there. He's not, it's like Jesus isn't scared about the dark. You notice, so when Jesus is sweating um, blood in the garden, he's not scared of the devil. Why is he so concerned? It's not evil that he's concerned about. It's, it's the wrath of God. It's, it's in fact, so Jesus doesn't have any concern about actual evil, right? It would seem, because he's the light. He's bringing this word of truth everywhere he goes. And yet, so for a time here, darkness is going to have its way. And you're really going to see darkness on the cross when it goes, when it goes dark for, for three hours on the cross. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we have darkness. But the Lord Jesus is bringing his light. So not only we can think about God's word as, as light, both by way of exposing for us the reality of our, of our sin that we're constantly in denial of, perhaps. The, the purpose of the law is to show us our, what, we deny, what we deny is there, right? Um, we, we run into this with like age, like uh, whenever, whenever we start getting older, we are always in denial, right? So we the, the, get, get as much surgery as we can and <laughs> cover up, uh, trying to make ourselves look, look young. We're in this constant perpetual, we're, we're, we're worried about aging and getting older. And so like then, so I tell myself, I've got a wonderful, beautiful head of hair. And then I walk into the mirror and exposes for me the reality of aging, right? So we know, we know we're getting, this is, the, this is God's word. This, what God's word does for us is it shows us 
the reality of how bad our situation is, the reality of death that we often avoid, the reality of our, of our addictions. But then also, more importantly, not, not just the reality of our problem, but the reality of our Savior. So like, I don't need a Savior if my problem's not so bad. So the law is driving me toward Jesus as my Savior. And that's the light. So the light's coming. It's coming and chasing away my self-justifications, my denial of, of how bad my sin is, and therefore the denial of my Savior. And then coming right along with it is blasting out, here's your actual Savior. This doing the repentance job on us. Uh, that's, that's the close of that, that section. We're going to get into Peter denying Jesus. Any, any uh, questions or comments leading up to verse 54? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's interesting. We, the, the, the problem is we can't, I, I'm speculating that, that as you and I picture this event, we do it through the lens of Mel Gibson, perhaps, um, from the Passion of the Christ, or we're just, we're picturing it like a movie. And the, the thing about movies is you can't really, if you're actually, have you ever seen a movie where they portray darkness the entire time? What do you see when you're watching a, an accurate movie that's portraying darkness? You see nothing, right? So if these guys are coming to Jesus in the darkness, it's very likely they couldn't see much anything at all. And kind of maybe they got a couple of, uh, what do you call those? Torches. But unless you're like, you know, close to one, I imagine it's easy to, and that's part of why Jesus, Judas had to actually go up to him and actually kiss him. Because he'd be like, that guy over there next to the bushes. Because he can't see over there by the bushes. Right? Is that maybe? That's a guess. I don't know. <laughs> this guy's ear is getting a lot of attention today. Does Malchus come back up? Does Malchus come back up? I don't believe so. I think he's only referenced in John. It's just, it's, it's whenever John's given us this account, it names, it names him. I, yeah, you, you gotta wonder, like, like later, the servant girl, weren't you, weren't you with those guys earlier? Cut off my cousin's ear. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Anything else? All right. Verse 54. Then they seized him. They seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house in the middle of the night. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, wait a minute, this man was also with him, but he denied it. So just to, before he gets into the denials, just considering a little bit of this of, of Jesus, uh, Peter following Jesus at a distance. So there's a couple of totally... Um, uh, it's, not, it's not the intent of the text, to be sure, because Jesus doesn't make this case. Luke doesn't make this case. Some of the commentators uh, made this, make this uh, kind of leap, and I think it's a helpful leap, is twofold. Um, to ask yourself the question, do you follow Jesus as a disciple, a follower of Jesus? Do you follow Jesus enough, close, closely enough, 
to be associated with him. You know, you know what I mean? Not in the sense that like you're walking around a guy with a beard. And <laughs> but are you, are, you a, are you a disciple of Jesus in your personal life, in your, in your conduct, in your conversations, um, the way you spend your, your time and, and so forth? Are you a disciple of Jesus in such a way that people would associate you with Jesus? Hey, you're with him, right? I think the, the only way we can rightfully answer that question is, of course not. You're never going to be good enough. Um, and yet the law is also there for our good. We should be striving for that, right? So let the law, let the law do its work on you and say, man, I, I, should, be, I should be a little more careful about how I speak um, about, about these things, or, or when, I, when I have an opportunity to, to confess Christ, maybe I should to take those opportunities and, and be mindful about how I'm spending my time and prioritizing my life and all this, right? The law is always going to condemn us, always going to convict us of not being disciplely enough. Um, but the law is still there showing us that we should be, right? So that, that's, I think that was a, just a helpful law question. It wasn't even intended in the text, but are we... Do, have we been around, are we, are we around Jesus enough so people are able to look on and, and say, hey, that guy's with, with them. But then also, in the same context here, it says Peter was following at a distance. Why was he following Jesus at a distance? Duh. He's afraid. If I'm too close, they're going to associate me with him and it'll be... It'll be <laughs> Things can turn things can turn bad, right? <laughs> Good. Uh, so, but that that also has a, a law turn for us all, right? So, my am I Christian in such? Do I follow Jesus safely at a distance in my personal life, in my in my conversations, in my online action, and whatever the, whatever the case is? And the law should come to us all and condemn us. You're not good enough. You'd follow, you follow Jesus too much at a distance, and you should not. And even further here, not, so he, can, he keeps a safe distance, but where does, where does he go for comfort? So notice, what's his problem in verse 55? Why did they kindle a fire? It's cold. So Peter's also cold, and he wants to be comfortable. So where does he go with comfort? He goes, he sits down among them the people who are going after Jesus. So he draws close to get comfort from the wrong people, and he's keeping his distance from the one who actually is, is there bringing him at true peace or true comfort. Now, that's a big stretch. That's not the point. This is a historical account, but I thought that was an interesting like, application of this. Is this just a, just a way for us to think through from the disciples' perspective uh, in, in the... The, uh, a way of thinking about it through the lens of Peter, that do, are, we, are we scared in the way that Peter was scared at times? And, and in what ways do you maybe keep your distance from Jesus, right? And, and how might you do better next time? Jesus doesn't care, by the way. He's still going to the cross for Peter. He's still going to the cross for you, Right? But it is, it's helpful law. Like, why, why would Peter do this? We, just, we, still, we see Peter denying him. Like, come on, man. Right? Well, same, same can be said of us and our living at a distance. Uh, 
And, but you're not going to get closer to Jesus by me telling you to get closer to Jesus. It's only by him actually dying for you and rising from the dead. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be okay, even if they come after me with swords. Same thing happened to the disciples, right? At first, they run and hide. And then after, after Jesus rises from the dead, now they're finally able to say, bring it on. Peter's crucified upside down. So the guy who denied him three times, he stops denying him. Not because Jesus told him, to, he never said, stop denying me. He simply said, feed my sheep. He just simply gives gospel, right? Then a servant girl seeing, seeing Peter as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him first time. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Peter said, man, I am not, second time. And after an interval of about an hour, so he had, he had a full hour to think about that. So he denied Jesus twice. Have you ever failed to confess Christ? If, you, if you've had the opportunity, and like I've talked to many of you who have had the situations, you've relayed to me, like, like I had the situation, I wanted to say something, I didn't say it. What, and you, you immediately start saying, what can I do better next time? How can I handle this situation better? You're thinking about it, right? Apparently not for Peter, or, or maybe an hour wasn't enough. After an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Third time, and immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crows. So then Jesus immediately gets the connection and the Lord turned, verse 61, and looked at Peter. Now, one of the commentators says that it's, so during this, while, while, Jesus, while Peter's around the fire, they had taken Jesus into the, the high priest's house and they likely made this fire outside the front door. So just the timing worked out in such a way that after he denied it three times, time had passed. I did not know him, rooster crows, Front door opens, and like, so Peter kind of looks over, the door opens, Peter, Jesus is standing right there as the rooster's crowing, and they just eye contact. I mean, that's certainly plausible. For me, it's still, it's, regardless of how it happens, Jesus knows what he's doing here, and it's very powerful. Very, very powerful on Peter. He turns, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So I think of my hand out here. See, yeah, next to the elf, I know him. <laughs> uh, that, when I put this in, it was still Christmas time, to be fair. Uh, after his threefold denial, Jesus looked at Peter. How was this powerful moment a gift to Peter? Right? Oh, that's, that's great. So he's bringing light into the darkness. He's exposing the problem there. But what does, the, what does this exposure, it hurts. It hurts Peter. I mean, I think it stabs him to the heart and he weeps bitterly. How is it a gift though? It's a call to repentance. Exactly. That's, what I would, that's how I would take it. I mean, as we, as we, when the law convicts us and turns us and brings us to to weeping at the depth of what I've done. That is itself repentance. 
And it is part of repentance. I mean, being forgiven also. So as Peter here remembers the saying of the Lord, so also in our repentance, we remember our Lord's, our Lord's warnings and his promises. So like we think about your sin and when you fall into sin, and then like immediately, like you can be struck by the law. The, the, the devil actually brings the law to, to condemn you and reveal, expose for you your sin. The devil's got a different goal in mind. He actually wants you to feel bad. He wants to drive you to despair and ultimately suicide, hopefully. Condemnation as well. Um, so that's what the devil will have in mind with the law, but what the law is actually reminding us what we already knew. Why am I doing that? Why am I a victim to this thing? So we remember that saying, and that would, that's ultimately what also brings us to repentance, to turn us from this sin that I don't want to do to, to the Lord for forgiveness. Weeps bitterly. And now just as a note here, the notice the contrast in Jesus looks at Peter, and this is the last time, perhaps, that, Jesus, that Peter has seen Jesus. Now, may, I can't recall, maybe later on we'll, we'll see, but I don't, think Jesus, I don't think Peter sees Jesus actually on the cross. Maybe I'm wrong about that. He runs off, at least the scriptures don't tell us that he saw him he saw him die. So it could, it could be, and if he did, it maybe it was from a distance. But here's the last time he sees Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, and he's struck to the heart. He just denied him three times, and he runs off. Then, when Jesus rises from the dead, Mark 16 gives it beautifully. If you, if you remember the account, when Jesus is saying, I think it's to Martha, or uh, Mary, not, uh, Mary Magdalene, outside the tomb, he says, like, don't cling to me, Go to Jerusalem, or go, go back to the room, go to the disciples, and tell the disciples and Peter that, that I have risen. Something like that. But he specifically calls out Peter, because Jesus knows from way back here, Peter's hurting. Peter needs the gospel now. So you go tell Peter that I've, I've solved the problem. It's very beautiful. And then, of course, after he, when he actually gets a chance to talk to Peter, Peter jumps off the boat with his clothes on. No, he takes his clothes. I can't remember how it goes. He jumps into the water, swims up to Jesus, and Jesus pulls him aside and says to him three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep, right? That's coming up at the, at the end. So we get the denial there of, of uh, denial by Peter of Jesus. Any, somebody got any questions on my handout? What can the Christian learn from Peter's failure and the general experience here? And how does the Lord continue to repent us today? I kind of, kind of talked about those things. The way te- how we're tempted to deny Jesus in our, personal, in our personal Christian lives as his disciples. But also he gives us the gift of repentance by, by giving us his law, showing us our, our failures and turning us back to him. Notice that if, like... It's not that repentance isn't telling us you need to make your, clean yourself up, make yourself perfect so that Jesus doesn't have to die. He's already dead. He already died. He did it before you, even, before you were even born, obviously, right? So for us, repentance is turning from our sin because we know it's not good for us and, and being forgiven by him in this ongoing way. Any, any questions or comments, sir? Bible are helpful to us because 
Very good. Right. We see, we see in Peter a good picture of our reality in the Christian life. In fact, Peter, which means like Rocky, <laughs> bumpy ride. Uh, so he's kind of got his, he's got his ups and downs. So he goes from like, you're, you, are the, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to no, let this never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, up down. Then he gets to go up the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Denies Jesus three times, and then he ends up being one of the pillars of the Christian church. Peter, James, and John. Peter, obviously, the uh, like we, we could call him the first pope in a good way, like the first head of the Christian church on earth. Um, and, and yet, it wasn't, it wasn't because he was sinless. It was because the Lord kept bringing him to repentance, and that's the Christian life. It's not to not to be sinless, but to be convicted of our sin, to turn from it and be forgiven by the Lord. Good. Anything else? Speaking of repentance, today's we remember the baptism of Jesus. If you, for those of you who, whether or not you're at the, the early service, we recount the the baptism of Jesus and. Um, gives us a chance to maybe reflect a little bit on our baptism and what the Lord is, has done for us in our, in our baptism. But it's always an interesting thing because why would Jesus be baptized? Like we, the one thing the kids know is that what does baptism do? It forgives my sins. And then we say, well, then Jesus was baptized. But wait a second, Jesus isn't sinful. See, how do you work that thing out? Well, so baptism is only for sinners. So Jesus becomes a sinner by being baptized. Not because baptism is sinful, but he does the thing that only sinners do. He's marked, he's marked, anointed, set apart as a sinner in our place. Uh, and as Luther puts it in his, in his prayer that we read before every baptism is that he made all waters holy by his baptism. So I, I try to around with that in the sermon today, this idea of the water itself carrying with it. The, it, puts our, it puts our sin on Jesus, but also brings his holiness back to us this ongoing way. Seeing nothing else, we'll continue next week with, uh, with Jesus being mocked. The Lord be with you.